my kids always like roll their eyes when I do it and I, I'm sitting in the car and I feel the sunlight on my face. And it's moments like that I think, oh, my God, I'm so grateful that I'm alive. And they're like, oh, mum, you're so weird. And I am weird about that because that's because, you know, I know that I nearly wasn't. And I just think about these beautiful moments that I get to share with my kids. Mm. And they're the things that like make me cry when I walk down the street, right? Mm. Um, so I don't have them too often. Otherwise, I wouldn't get any work done. No, that's fair enough. But I do, I'm really cognizant of that. And I feel just, I feel you know, very, very grateful for mm. all of those little things like the dog. Yeah, yeah. And the sunlight, you know. That is lawyer, non-executive director and 2004 tsunami survivor, Rebecca Giles. And this is episode 312 of Better Than Yesterday. And welcome to Better Than Yesterday. I'm Osha Ginsberg. Thanks for being a part of the show. This is episode 312 of the show with Rebecca Giles. You can find her on Instagram, R-E-B-E-K-A-H-G-I-L-E-S, Rebecca Giles. Tell you more about her in just a moment. If you're new, welcome to the show. Thanks for being a part of it. I'm Osha Ginsberg. I'm a TV uh, guy, a podcast guy, a dad, stepdad from Sydney, in Australia, and um, this podcast is simply a conversation designed to help you make today a bit better than yesterday. I guarantee that something that you'll hear in the next hour and a bit will make you go, oh, and then that's the noise you'll make, and then you'll kind of make a bit of an adjustment to your day, and then it turns out better than it was the day before. That's it. If you like what you hear, there are 311 other episodes to listen to, six years of conversation to catch up on. So strap in. If you've got stuff to do, we've got a soundtrack for you. Thank you very much to everyone for checking in on me this week. If you're listening to this six years from now, it is November 2019, and most of the east coast of Australia is on fire. It's not good. There are people who are sending thoughts and prayers to try and put the fires out, which doesn't work. It's not a great scene. Um, But those who are doing what they can are doing everything they can to do what they can. And the rest of us are trying to donate money to help those people do what they need to do to look after the people that need our help. Yep, that's what's happening. Uh, Thank you very much to everyone for checking in on me this week uh, around that stuff. If you're listening to this, uh, you might know that, you know, it's a bit tough for me to deal with this kind of stuff, but it is intense. That's okay. I'm okay to be with it today. I'm sure it's intense for you as well. I am willing to be with this today. I'm willing to be with how difficult it all is um, because that's all I can do and thankfully all I need to do. I just have to do today. That's it. And tomorrow I'll sort that out then. Just a day at a time. Like everything, really. Thanks heaps for all the emails that came through this week. Send Osher email at gmail.com. Dan sent us a pic of uh, the, the beautiful, it looks like row 17A. He's checking in high in the sky. Great to hear how you're doing. Thanks for being so honest. Always a pleasure, Dan. 
Joe listening to the E.G. Hans You Miss episode, a classic. Joe's uh, walking through North Adelaide Parklands. Oh, I know those parklands. When I used to live in Adelaide, I'd wander up there with the dog. Thanks heaps, Joe. Just send, send me a photo of what you're looking at as you're listening and shoot it over. Send us your email at gmail.com. Always love to see it. Um, thanks very much to, for uh, Jacinta, who's uh, listening to the Aaron Brockovich episode. Uh, we're walking along the Yarragon Trail with my three-month-old. And then the second pick is um, the view out the window while feeding, said three-month-old, listening to the interview with Jesse Israel. Unreal, man. That's super duper. Uh, thanks very much for that, uh, for listening, Jacinta. I really appreciate that. If you do listen to the show, it was always like, and this show does bring you value and you want to repay what this value brings to you, the best thing you can do for us is go to the, uh, wherever you listen to this podcast, you can rate, subscribe and review. And that really helps the show. That's where you can tell someone else about it. That's the other best thing you can do for the show. But just if you can rate, review, and subscribe to the show, wherever you rate, review, and subscribe to the show, that'd be awesome. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like, what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So let me tell you about my guest today. Rebecca Giles is a partner at Kennedy's Law Firm. Uh, she is an, an ambassador for the Fertility Research Clinic at the Royal Hospital for Women Foundation. She's a mother and she is a survivor of the 2004 Boxing Day tsunami. We're coming up on 15 years ago when that happened. 26th of the December 2004. And on that day, a rupture along two tectonic plates, uh, the plates known as the Burma Plate and the plate uh, known as the India Plate, that rupture caused an undersea megathrust earthquake that shook the earth for a staggering 10 straight minutes. The earthquake caused tsunami waves emanating out from the epicenter. And some of these waves were up to 30 metres high and travelled up to two kilometres inland, destroying everything in their path. Millions of people were displaced and over a quarter of a million people were killed. 
In the aftermath, a global outpouring of support and compassion followed, the world largely putting politics aside and rallying around those affected by the most devastating natural disaster in modern history. In the days and weeks that followed, looking for some good news out of the seemingly never-ending horror of the situation, stories of heroism and survival started to filter through. And Rebecca's is one such story. She came to our apartment a little while back. Wolfie hadn't been born yet. And even though she is a partner at a big law firm, very busy, 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 very, very, uh, her time is very valuable, uh, very busy person, she gave up hours of her time to share her story with us and the lessons that she learned along the way. I'll let Rebecca take you through it, but I will tell you this. I hope you and I never, ever, ever have to experience what she went through. However, what she has to share about living now, living the life she got back to live again, it's something that touched me at the time and it's something I carry with me every day from the day we had this conversation. And I certainly hope that you do too. This is an extraordinary story. If you like what you hear, please let her know. You can find her on Instagram, Rebecca Giles, R-E-B-E-K-A-H-G-I-L-E-S. Enjoy this conversation with Rebecca Giles. How are you today? I'm good. How about mm-hmm. you? I kind of, I'm probably way less busy than you. You're a, a partner at a fuck-off law firm and you're... <laughs> You know, took an afternoon out. I mean, this is what, a couple of grand's worth of your time Probably. to come I'll out I'll send here? you my invoice. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how much I pay my lawyer. It's amazing that you came to do this. Thank you. Not at all. I'm grateful that you, you did this. You have uh, quite an extraordinary story to tell and you have an extraordinary life that you continue to lead. And I don't know, like when I was getting ready for this, that your story, that more people don't know your story, kind of just, oh, yeah, I, can, I know that person. Yeah, you know, that, that name's so so familiar. It's like this is a story we need to. Yeah, it's funny. It's something that I've kind of been really conflicted about because yeah, you know it was such a terrible event, and you know you don't want to. I mean, exploit the sort of. I don't know. I felt a bit awkward about talking about it for my own personal promotion in any in mm. any way, but as sort of my life changed and what I did changed, I found a way that I could talk about it with something that had sort of great benefit for other people. Well, that's precisely it. Yeah. You know, someone asked me about why did I write a book or you're very brave to write that book. I I didn't write it for me. Yeah. I wrote it because I heard a story like mine once. Yes. And because that story had a happy ending, I didn't believe mine could ever have a happy ending. Yeah. when I heard that person's had a happy ending, I thought, well, maybe there might be some some reason to keep going. It's powerful and you you sort of, and for a long time I didn't, I sort of kept it very... Mm. Close to my chest, and um, I didn't like to talk about it. Yeah, well, I'm grateful that you you have, and you're able to it as much as you feel comfortable to. I wouldn't want to dig anything up that you don't want to have Not to. No, I'll just, break. I'll just, I'll just cry and leave. No, make you a nice <laughs> another cup of tea. Um, but you actually grew up in Sydney. Didn't I sure you? did. But I'm not this bit. You grew up. I in was that. born in Paddington, actually. I was, I was a baby of the Royal Hospital for Women, which I'm now an ambassador of the Fertility and Research That's Clinic. Fantastic. There. Yes. And I grew up in the hills. What did your folks do at the time? When I was born, mm. 
Oh, such a that that's that's a whole other story. I was I was adopted as a baby, so you know I was adopted when I was six weeks old. So which folks, you know? Well, what do you know? Well, you know, my mother was a young teenage girl who got pregnant to a, a, a Malaysian guy in KL where her parents worked. And Kuala she was, Lumpur. Yeah. Yeah. And she came back to boarding school pregnant. And, you know, when her pregnancy was revealed, was promptly pulled out of school by her ear and sent to the country for the rest of her period of confinement. Old school. That happened to a friend of mine. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it was the 70s, so you can imagine, you know, all that love child stuff, you know, true, true. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, in shame and this horrible cloud. Which which part? Because my mate went to Roma in Queensland. I don't really I think country New South Wales somewhere. And so I was adopted through a church agency to my parents who were lovely Christian people and, you know, I'm still very close with today. Did they have other kids already? Yeah, they did. They did. My parents are really amazing people and adopted lots of children and have my mum looks after drug-addicted babies to this day. She's incredible. Wow. So yeah. how many brothers and sisters? Uh, three sisters, two brothers, and my mother has a little baby boy, Tyrone, who's 11 months old at the moment. Tyrone. Yeah, a little red-headed Indigenous child who's Already gorgeous. Already has the best Erica Badu song. Right. You better call up Tyrone, <laughs> but you can't use my phone. Such a great song. It's also hilarious that a baby's called Tyrone. It's but awesome anyway. that he's called Tyrone. I might have to put that on a list. Hang on. We've got a list. As you know, you've yeah. got kids. You've got a list and they go on and then about 12 hours later they go yeah. off. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's a hardcore name. I think he's going to be a hardcore kid. But the problem is we've got a pair with Ginsburg. Oh. Yeah, Tyrone Ginsburg. I don't know. And you've got to go easy on the first name to, like, yeah, I to, to, to go make Len- way for the power of the I second. wanted to go Lenny, but Audrey's like, we can't call him Lenny Ginsburg. <laughs> He'll be like destined to a, a job in entertainment law. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Hi, I'm Lenny Ginsburg. Yeah, I'm not even Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> Only half. That's another long story. So your folks adopted you and... Mm. Your mom was an Australian girl? Yes. Right. Yeah, and my father's Malaysian, hence the the mixed bag you see before you. It's all right. I married, Audrey would describe, and she would not be upset with me. She always describes herself as a bitzer. <laughs> she a Chinese Fijian mom, Indian right. Samoan dad. How early on do you have the conversation with... How come everyone looks different to me? You know, I don't think we ever did have the conversation because I kind of knew. I mean, I'm brown and my whole family's white. And, you know, I remember running down the hallway when I was a kid and we had family, every yearly family portraits. And I used to sometimes like do a double take and like, who's the brown kid in the photo? Because I just thought I was a white kid. Mm. And then I, oh, it's me. That's right. You know, and so I was always, you know, I looked really different to my family and, you know, I always would go to the shops and the lady in the shoe shop would say to my mum, oh, yes, I can kind of see the resemblance between the two of you. And my mum and I would knowingly look at each other like, mm. what an idiot. But I always knew I was adopted. But because I grew up in um, a family where it was so open and embraced and celebrated, I never had an issue with it mm. ever. And um, my, my auntie did it as well and so did my grandmother. And it was just part of what my family did. And they were just wonderfully generous people. That's so lovely. Mm. That's so, so lovely. I, knowing my friend, he has a, a relationship with both sets of parents now. Mm. And it's tricky now because we're in the time of our lives being in our mid to late 40s now yeah. where decisions are starting to have to be made about, you know, because they're in their late 70s or sure. 80s. And it's, it's tricky to have to do that doubly so. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Hefty. 
Yeah, you know, so I found out my father, he died when I was a couple of months old. Oh. Didn't even know I existed. Your birth father? Yeah. So, you know, I, I kind of, he's sort of like, I feel a bit sad for him. He just sort of died in a plane crash when I was a baby, really. So never never knew he had a daughter. and Yeah. Um, so that sort of, that's that chapter is closed. But um, um, I'm really lucky I have some great family that I'm blood related to who are really beautiful people. And oh, that's great. Yeah. Oh, that's super, super lovely. Yeah, it was a big plus, an unexpected plus. Yeah. Yeah. You have this super powerful career now. Was there a point early on when you realised that you had more gas in the tank than hmm. other people you went to school with? Look, I always wanted to be a lawyer. I mean, that's so embarrassing to admit. Not at all. But I just sort of, as soon as I, I, I always, you know, I was always into arguing with my parents and I loved, you know, performing and doing all those sorts of things. And then when I went to school and I studied legal studies, I was like, oh my God, this confluence of skills and things that I love just all came together and I was like, this is it, this is what I want to do. And I didn't have, you know, lots of role models around me. I knew one lawyer and I thought he was amazing. And, you know, law wasn't as glorified as it is in media today. It was sort of maybe there was LA Law and maybe the early days of Law and Order. But I knew that that's what I wanted to do. I didn't even know what that looked like. Mm. But I um, I found a friend and he was studying law. And when I was at school, I used to come along to law lectures at night and just listen and watch and look at these students. And I was, oh, wow. So you got to – so yeah. just to explain the geography of the place. So the hills, which yeah. you referred to, is we're talking like – Dural. Yeah, okay. that's right. So out, way out there. We did Bachelor out there for two years in Glenory, oh, yeah. which is on the really other side. Really close, really close to where I lived. Really lovely, but semi-rural yeah. and a long, way for a, a long way for a kid without a licence to get to a yeah. university. Now, which university were we getting to? Uni- Sydney University. So you're travelling all the way into Newtown. Yep. Holy and I would sit in lectures at night and listen to an equity lecture and I would talk to my friend who would let me come into the lecture. With, I mean, I wonder what they were thinking. Why is this kid with a school uniform sitting in law lectures? They maybe probably thought I was Doogie Hauser, MD, but I loved it. They probably don't care. To be, I mean, <laughs> there's some of those lecture halls are 400, 500 yeah, people. Massive. And if they see a school kid in there, it's like, oh, it's probably someone's kid. They're just minding them. I know. I looked like I was about eight as well, so... <laughs> <laughs> So sitting in those lectures, being around those students, being yeah. on campus, that's a powerful thing. Absolutely. She Absol- gives you a sense of possibility. Yeah, absolutely. And because I didn't come from a family who, you know, had anyone had had a university education or anything like that. And so for me it was like this, you know, this great unknown and this sort of I just got a glimpse of what my life could be like and this sort of all this learning. And Because I, I grew up in a really religious environment, which was, you know, it was great in some ways, but... Those sorts of things like education weren't really the priority. Science? What's yeah, that? Precisely. Those aw- that awkward creation conversation. So. Yeah, I went to a, uh, you know, like when your mates get christened mm. and you go off to their. Well, yeah, their kids get christened. They shouldn't be getting well, christened sorry, unless they're kids, babies. Yeah, they're older. <laughs> you know, when you, and you, you find yourself at a, a denomination that you don't, mm. you know, it's, you don't really remember ever hearing about before and then you get there and then you're hearing the sermon you're like, Okay. All right, this is what's going on. All right, everyone here is pretty into it. All right, let's go with it. All right, then. That's what works for you. Ripper. Not for me, but I get it. Yeah. I get why you like it. Yeah. Right. So how, I mean, it sounds to me like that you've diverted from the path. I wouldn't say I've diverted because I think I'm a spiritual person and I always have been. But I don't know. Organised religion doesn't really work for me. Mm. How old were you when you figured that out? 
When I started asking these questions like, it doesn't really make sense, how about this, this and this, and I didn't get answers that were to my satisfaction. Mm-hmm. And I just sort of thought, okay, well, and I thought, you know, I'm really respectful of my family and their beliefs and it really works for them, but it's just not for me. Yeah. You know? That's, I dig it. That's okay. I, I used to be quite resentful. I used to have the I'm right and you're stupid yeah, brain, but that's before I got sober and I realised, yeah. wow, there's more things at stake than who we believe totally. made everything. Totally. And if that's going to save your life and save your family, mate, yeah. go for it. Well, it's like I always say I'm not an atheist at all. I'm, I'm agnostic because I'm not arrogant enough to think that I know everything because I sure as hell don't, you know. Yeah. And there's so much magic and wonder in the world that who knows? There's something going on. Yes. That's bigger than me. We're not alone. Well, true. That exactly right. There's a possibility that we are is smaller than the possibility that we aren't. It's Absolutely. a scientific fact. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, there's something way bigger going on that is bigger than me that I that I cannot comprehend. And for me, that's enough mm. to go. All right, there's something I have to be humble before because yes. I'm not bigger than this. I'm not smarter than this. Absolutely. You know. And you know that. You feel it in your yeah. in your being as well. Like this, it's it's more. You know, we're yeah. more than just flesh and blood. Like this, there's got to be some reason we have this, like this soul and this spirit and like. Mm. Absolutely. So when you were once you got an inkling of where you would end up, mm. did you then just reverse engineer it and go, All right, I'm going to need this grade, this grade, that grade, and that's. Did you go? Did you did much. you order the I course just, at UTS? I, I just studied. I studied my hardest, yeah. and then I got into UTS, and it was like. Game on from there. I moved, yeah. I moved into the city. I met people who blew my mind. Mm. And I just found these people who were amazing and they invested in me and gave me this self-belief that honestly, I don't know, was not entitled to it at all. And what kind of people are we talking here? Oh, just lecturers or my dean of my law school or, um, you know, a family friend who would drive me to the station who, you know, thought I would be an amazing lawyer and just people who supported me, like those sorts of really selfless type investments, you know. I was just like a little upstart university student. But they saw something in you. I think so, yeah. And they would, you know, they sort of instilled in me this mentality of just sort of fearlessness. And I, you know, go, are you interested in studying that area? Okay, why don't you call the author of that book and have a coffee with them? I'm sure they'd love to meet with you. Are you serious? And then I would, and then they did. And then we became friends and, and then he introduced me to somebody else who then gave me a job and then da 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 and then your world expands and then that's how it happens. So early on learning about having the self-belief and have the self-worth that, no, I am worthy of picking up this phone yeah. and calling this person is just like me. They just happen to have written a book. They're still a person. They yeah. still go to the grocery store. They still use the yeah. toilet. I'm going to give them a call. Absolutely. What's the worst thing they can do? They can say no. And then where I am, I exactly where I am if I don't pick up the phone. And I have to say, there's nobody that when I was at that age that I ever contacted or I was ever, who ever rejected me or ever discouraged me, ever. And I just sort of think, you know, I, there I was thinking, well, who would want to speak to me? I was a little I'm a girl from the hills. You know, I can't offer that person anything. I can't give them any money or work or whatever. But people genuinely want to help other people, particularly people who are sort of leaders in that, in you know, whatever their chosen field is. I think that they were undoubtedly helped by somebody. I would put it to you that people, when I look at my own industry mm. and I look at the people that I want to go out of my way to help, yeah. it's the people that I recognise something of myself in. Yeah, right. You know, if there's five runners who work on our show 
and I'm just making this up. I'm just going to conglomerate sure. four or five people so I don't identify anybody. Yeah. But say there's five runners that work on my show. Yeah. But one of them, she's making a YouTube series every week and she's shooting and editing it herself and she's da 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 I'm like, okay. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. I, I see that because that's okay. You, yeah. you actually want this. And I'm sure it's the same thing with you. You're a senior partner at a firm. There's people who come in and then you recruit the new round and there'll be 20 of them but one of them you go, ah, it's you. You're the one. One of my star lawyers, she read about me in a magazine. She was a student at Macquarie University, not the best law school in the in the state. Sends me an email, writes this like really passionate, fantastic, I love this about you and this and that and whatever. It's like, I want to meet this girl who took a time to write me an email. And she's amazing. She's an amazing lawyer now. So she reached out to you. Yeah. And then you performed the same duty that was yep. performed to you yep. by helping this person out, yep. directing them. Yeah. And she's, you know, I think it's a mentality thing when you recognise someone's got this sort of like, you know, whether it's this gratitude mindset or they're, they're people who are just, they're good people who want to connect and they've, it's coming from the right place, not just out of, you know, trying to like pad the CV and be like just climbing the corporate ladder. You want to help those people, mm. right? And the, the upside for me, they get an amazing team of lawyers. Win. <laughs> well, that's the thing that a lot of people don't consider when before they reach out. Yeah. They, it, they may think exactly what you think, and I certainly you know can relate to this. It's like I've got nothing to offer this person. Mm. I'm discounting the fact that I'm offering them myself. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Your time, your body, your sweat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And your energy. Yeah. Because sometimes it's just nice to go, oh, that's right. I always like it when that person comes in because they remind me of why I'm here. That's yeah, good. Absolutely. Glad you're here. Absolutely. Good one, Bruce. <laughs> that's one of the baby names I throw out. Oh, <laughs> we still have <laughs> Bruce. Keith, that's another one I'm going for, but I don't think it's going to get over the line. No. <laughs> no, I don't like that. But it's funny to make Audrey flinch. <laughs> <laughs> too so late we, now, Audrey. The baby's uh, coming. <laughs> it's too late now. No, no, no. So law is a, it's a, it's a, it's a journey mm. to use a great reality TV show. It's a, it's a long journey. Yeah. And it has many, like medicine, it has a lot of specialties that you yeah. can go into. What, what bit attracted you the most and why? Um, look, I had a rotation, you know, I went to I worked for a big law firm and you can rotate through different divisions and to me litigation and that's, you know, that really means fighting in court, it just appealed to me because that to me embodies what law really, and look, law is not litigation, there's so much non-contentious work, people sit there and calculate stamp duty and work out tax strategies and M&A and things like that. It doesn't do it for me. I don't like transactional work. I don't like waiting for someone to give me instructions and then working through the night and then producing a document to them. I love the dynamic aspect of litigation and the strategy and I feel like it's it's more of a people skills type of law. And, you know, if you understanding what your client's drivers are and what the other side's drivers are and then strategizing how you're going to win the case for them or get them the best result or whatever that is, that's what I love about what I do. Yeah. And... You know, also, every day it's a different case and every day it's a different client and a different set of circumstances. So it's never boring. Yeah. You know? What I love about law and particularly litigation, which you're talking about, which is that generally people, they do everything they can to not get it to court. A lot of these conversations that you're having, a lot of the arguments you're having happen over a boardroom table at mutual ground somewhere. Like, so the thing that people see on TV of like the big court monologue, opening, closing arguments, that doesn't happen as much as no. the stuff in the room. No. But even so, that the close quarters combat stuff is yeah, super amazing. intense. But what I love about it is 
and we have these centuries and centuries of people wanting to use like, oh, he said a magic spell and everything changed. Well, what's magic? Magic's just words, all right? Through a five-word sentence, a ten-word sentence, you could change the law of the land. Yeah. Gay people can now marry. Indigenous people are humans. They're not Canada's fauna. Yeah. You know, it's just words. Yeah. But it creates an agreement that we then as a society go, okay, that's yeah. the new reality. Absolutely. And suddenly the world changes just from this magic spell. Absolutely. I mean, the, even the, the, you know, how we use juries as a reflection of our community standards. Mm. And that's so powerful. I do a lot of defamation law and what, what a jury might find as defamatory on one day could be different to what they how, what they find defamatory five years later when we've progressed as a society or, mm. you know, it depends on the jury. So many factors. There's so many interesting moving parts. Fascinating. Mm. Guys, fascinating. So were you on in this rotation when you thought about a vacation to Thailand? <laughs> <laughs> no, I was a litigator then and I was, you know, I, I, loved, I loved my life and I, had, I was in a really highly sort of active and busy group and it was just go, 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 go. And I thought, yeah, I had a trial that was starting at the end of January and I thought I really need a break. So I organised a last-minute trip to Thailand and I was honestly, from thinking of it to being there was a couple of days, you know. Right. Yeah. So you spent Christmas Day in Thailand? I did. I did. Were you alone? No, I was with my boyfriend at the time and, you know, we had a massive Christmas dinner I don't know if you've been to PP Island. It's a really small island. I think I have. Is that the one that you've got to take a boat to get there? It's mm. kind of crescent-shaped. Yes. Yeah, I have Precisely been there. Right. And there's exquillion boats on the beach. That's exactly right. Yeah, it's really, there. really skinny in the middle. Yeah. And it has it takes mountains. ages to get out there. Yeah. yeah, and it's very, very um, shallow on the, the bay side. Yes. So we went there and we had, you know, the, you know, the compulsory Christmas dinner that's in the resort and then everyone was – there was lots of – Christmas acts and drag queens performing and the next day everyone was kind of like sleepy and hungover and it was just like a really sleepy boxing day in any, you know, in any Asian resort across the region. And yeah, and then sort of I went to the buffet and had like a lot of breakfast, like a lot of bacon. Well, you're hungover. I was. And then I went to go and have a little lie down in my bungalow on the beach and that's when it happened. What do you remember? that I was reading a magazine about like, it was something like how to make like a, a white jacket work in 20 different outfits, like just combos. So, you know, I often think if that was my last moment, like that's so bad if I was reading that article. I'd rather read like some sort of beautiful philosophical book or something like that, but whatever, that was it. I was reading, I think it was like Marie Claire or something. And my boyfriend came to the room and was talking to me about something and then we just heard a rumble, not a scary rumble, just some background noise and we just sort of like, mm, it's interesting. And then the next minute just the whole room around me just disintegrated. Like, it was like a bomb. What didn't like fill up and we're sort of swirling around. With water? Yeah, no, nothing like that. It was like a bomb. And I just had absolutely no idea what was happening to me and the next thing I knew I was just being spun in a billion different directions. I had no control over any part of my body and I, I obviously I know now that I was under the water and I was travelling at quite a rapid speed amongst a lot of debris and everything that came with that wave. But I was just, you know, my internal dialogue was just going crazy, like what the hell is this? And then I kind of went through a few theories in my head as to what it could be and then I thought, hold on, all very interesting, Rebecca, but... Um, Oh, my chest is really hurting. I don't know what's happening. I think I could be in a bit of trouble here. 
And then I just had a really slow-mo like, oh my God, this is, could be it for me. And I just had a billion emotions, like so angry. I'm 27. What? And I thought about my niece who was only 18 months at the time and I was so sad that I would never see her grow up. All these, a million different thoughts like that. And sort of just as I kind of accepted the reality of what was happening to me, not having any idea what was really what had happened to me, I was propelled out of this wave and I was, I've landed on the roof of a three or four storey hotel that had sort of had withheld the, the wave. It hadn't, hadn't collapsed and had a mountain of debris that had sort of been mounting against it and I, I landed on the top of that roof. And the, still the wave was flying past me and I was just I, I, looking around me. I just saw just black, putrid sea, bubbling, fizzing sea and treetops and things like that. And I was just like, what is this? Is this like the end of the world? I, I, I couldn't understand what had happened. You know, now a tsunami is such a, it's in our vernacular. But back then, it was like a weird Japanese word that, you know, you'd hear in like Japanese cartoons or something. So it just never occurred to me. And then there was another huge surge of a wave and that sort of sucked me under the water for a while. And I knew I was broken to bits. I couldn't move my legs, my arm, and I could see my bone and my arm and I wasn't in any pain, but I always had this heightened state of awareness. I was obviously adrenaline was pumping through my body. And I didn't have any fight in me at all. I was just like, ah, this is happening. Oh my God. And then I just sort of just went into myself and I just, your mind is so amazing that it just protects you. You know, I saw some awful things around me. There was so much death and so many terrible things. And your mind's so funny. I, like my first thought, my first real thought that I can remember was like, I've lost all those silk dresses that I bought on this holiday. I'm just never going to get them clean. And just sort of thinking about, oh my God, I've got that trial. I wonder if I'm going to get an extension of time on my evidence. Just like crazy thoughts. And I see like, you know, I've got dead people around me. And I'm just thinking about silly day-to-day things and my mind's just going, it's okay, Rebecca, eyes ahead, eyes ahead, eyes ahead. I'm going to protect you from all of this. And then, of course, the waves subsided and what, you know, this beautiful idyllic island, which you know what it looks like, it's beautiful, looked like, you know, a tip that had been there for 20 years and nothing, I mean, it was just piles and piles of rubbish and just broken things and people and... You know, the people part was by far the worst. You know, they it wasn't gruesome at all. It was just, you know, like the people looked like broken puppets. They were just sort of asleep everywhere. I had to kind of like go into myself just to like shut it all out because it was just really overwhelmingly, it was difficult to process. And I was rescued off the roof by some backpackers. Well, I don't know why I call them backpackers, some Swedish guys who looked like backpackers who put me on a door and got me down and then took me to an area of safety where they were sort of stacking up all the bodies and I was there for a long, long time. and Hours? Hours and hours. And I knew that I had internal bleeding because I was sort of really woozy and I was very, very quiet, which, you know, I talk a lot in my normal life. Yeah. So I, didn't, I think I said about three words the whole day. And I could see all these open wounds and I'm not really good with blood and that sort of thing. And so I was just sort of like... I can't believe this is happening. 
And, you know, a lot of people were really afraid and they were running to the mountains with their kids, as you understand. And and then sort of towards the end of the afternoon, a, a plane went overhead. It's funny because I said to Damien, who was my boyfriend at the time, you know, don't worry, the Australian government, will, they'll be here in like 50. How were you together? He eventually found me. He found me. He was screaming my name and I was like... Oh, what happened to him? He was quite badly injured in the lower half of his body and he spent some time in hospital when he came back to Australia, but um, he was very, very fortunate. That, so, the two of you were able to get it out together. Yeah. I mean, it's statistically amazing. I mean, yeah. I mean the, the number of deaths in our hotel was just staggering. What, like we hundreds? Were, oh, like 90% of the resort, yeah. you know. Thousands of people died on that island. Yeah. Thousands. And it's not a very big island. No. So Probably you, a couple you either k's had, wide at most. I, I, I don't know how anybody in that middle section survived it because it was completely underwater. When you found yourself on the roof, yeah. so this is the second roof or the same roof? Same roof. Okay, when you found yourself on the roof and the waves started to subside, do you remember hearing anything? Yeah, I do. I remember hearing some awful screaming and I remember hearing like little explosions and things. There was sort of, I don't know if there were gas bottles or something like, and I just, more than anything, I remember the smell. It just smelled so terrible. Yeah. Honestly, so really weirdly, my my work security token, so I can log in remotely, ultimately was returned to me in Sydney, and it arrived in an express, like a little, <laughs> I don't know how, because it says please return to Minter Ellison, right? That's amazing. And it came back to my office. I think it came through DFAT perhaps, but it was caked in the mud on the island, and I opened it, and that smell, ah. Oh. Our olfactory senses are oh. hardwired. Completely. So your boyfriend finds you. Yeah. And the two of you are together. Yeah. But, and like I said, I've been to this island. It is remote. Mm. It is hard to get to. Nothing comes there unless it comes by boat. And we were on a very fast boat and it took us an hour and 20 to get there. It's a long way from anywhere. Yeah, but it's so funny, you know, as an entitled, privileged Australian, I was like, eh, no worries. They'll work it out. The Australian government will come and rescue us. And then no one came. Of course, I had no idea of the scale of this disaster and that the whole world was shocked and scrambling and doing all of those things. And, in fact, I really had no idea of the scale of what had happened until for months later. You know, I was in an induced coma for a long time and everything happened and all the news happened and I was just, I was completely oblivious to it all. But, of course, you know, now that I know and I just I realise how incredibly lucky I was and everything that happened to me from that moment to the moment I left hospital, it was just like this, I had the most, I hate to use the word, but like blessed path. I, I had the very best, sur- like, and honestly, the very best surgeons. I had my law firm go into bat for me to make sure I got back to Australia before I got really sick. I had the last lot of blood in the local hospital, all of those things. Like, I don't know if there's a grand design or plan or whatever, but I feel like I just had the charmed run through where so many things could have gone very badly wrong and I was so very, very sick, had a very bad infection. But I just had, like, the crack team that got me back and put me back together. I mean, I, at the end of it, I was like the bride of Frankenstein, right? But I was alive and, I'm, you know, look, at, I'm functional, like, can move, can dance, can do all the things now. But, you know, it was just, I was, I don't know, I know, I know if it wasn't the tsunami, I wouldn't have got that royal treatment, but I got the royal treatment, 
you know, red carpet rolled out as soon as I got back to Australia. You know, my GP, Karen Phelps, was amazing. Just caught, she, you know, I, I have no no doubt she can run the seat of Wentworth because she was able to manage my health, which was like the, a huge battle. So I was just really, really lucky. How did you get off the island? A Apache helicopter. US? It was, th- it was a Thai military helicopter. Right. Came and landed in the water. A guy from Melbourne called Leonard put me on the helicopter, laid me along the, the knees of all these injured people who were in the rows of seats, and they took us to Krabi Hospital, which was this local hospital. There were, like, dogs and cats throughout the hospital. And yeah. It's like you, can't, you couldn't make it up. It was, you know, really basic, but they undoubtedly saved my life and did what they had to do to get me to the next step. Yeah, next level up. Yep. You were triaged as we could probably save this one. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Both of my folks were doctors and I, mum used to talk about those triage decisions. Uh, battlefield triage decisions Yeah. fucking hard. Yeah. It's P- super they, hard. They performed, you know, surgery without any anaesthetics straight away, huh. straight away. Um, I got blood transfusions and then they, I got the hell out of there on a DC-10 to Bangkok General. And then I had a whole stack of surgery there. And then, you know, a few weeks later, I was made back back to Sydney. What got you through? I mean, that would have been, like, A, like, super traumatic. And thank you for describing it in such detail. Because we've seen the mm. movies, we've seen the photos, we've seen the yeah. know, CGI recreations or whatever, but nothing compares to hearing it from you. I can only imagine the, the darkness and the sound and the physical sensation of having just I mean no one likes to have a bit of seaweed brush against their leg <laughs> in the water you know what I mean no. and then but to be in water yeah. in the darkness being touched on all sides by sharp horrible things that are cutting you and yeah honestly the best description is like an industrial blender I was just being smashed my goodness but you know like you say like it's it's as surreal for me recalling it to you now mm. as it is to you watching it on Naomi Watts in yeah, The yeah. Impossible, right? Just as surreal. Mm. It was unreal. It was truly unreal. It's fascinating listening to you describe it, though, because the clarity, it didn't sound... Were you afraid? Uh, no, I didn't have time to be afraid. And, you know, if someone had said to me a year ago, you're going to get hit by a tsunami, I'd be shit scared, obviously. Yeah. And at the time, I was just so confused. And by that time, it had happened. Hmm. And I'd had broken bones and all sorts of things. And I was like, oh, wow, it's really quick. It's like getting your ears pierced, I guess. It sort of hurts, but it's really quick. You don't even notice it. And so I wasn't afraid. And, you know, that's, that's why when, you know, some people are really sensitive and kind to me about, oh, do you want to go to the beach and things like that? I'm not afraid of the water. I have massive respect for the power of that ocean. It is, it is like... It's like being hit with 10 tonnes of concrete, right? But what did make me afraid is just how quickly your life can change in like a blink of an eye. I was like all that Miss like Elle Woods pink suit wearing litigator and then the next I couldn't even feed myself and I had a colostomy bag and like all the awful things and I couldn't brush my own hair for ages and it, that's what scared me, like, you know, that all of the things and all of the credentials and all of the, you know, what it, it doesn't, didn't matter at all. Like I was just, I was brought back to my most base level as just a human. 
and I was rebuilt by these incredible doctors and modern medicine, these drugs and all of these things. And then I was, you know, as a young woman having such horrendous injuries, that was like a big, that was a big mountain to climb, you know, and then getting my self-worth from other things. And, you know, I had nurses, the kindest nurses who would come after their shift and just talk to me for hours or teach me how to knit or like, because I spent so much time in hospital. And I kind of like, it was a really sobering lesson about humanity and, you know, what's it, mm. you know, the goodness of, of people and the power of that, mm. of selflessness, you know. Mm. And This is Georgia. Hi, Georgia. I've heard so much about you. I'm Rebecca. Nice to meet you. Hi. How's school? Good. Thank yeah, all right. Do whatever you got to do, huh? Thank you. Don't worry about us. These podcasts frequently contain... Uh, <laughs> Uh, moments where my family come and use the kitchen. And Fair it's delightful enough. because... Well, it's real life. Pardon? It's real life. It is. And, you know, this, this, this show is like there's two people sitting around my kitchen table having it's a chat. It's real life. I often think about that guy, you know, that hilarious guy who did that BBC interview and the, the kids come in and the it's walker. Glorious. I just love it. I just love it because he's trying to be like, I am a serious person in yeah. a vacuum. And actually nobody's really in a vacuum, are they? Well, it's funny you mention that. It's, it's a, there's a fabo podcast my youngest brother put me onto called Should This Exist? And it's the mood recognizing facial recognition software. Right. Which is exciting but terrifying at the same time. All right. Because you may be saying one thing, particularly in your industry. Yeah. A person may be saying one thing, but if micro expressions that can be picked up by an algorithm faster than you or I could detect them, go, no, 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 that person's full of it. You know, I would love that. Yeah, I know, right? So whoever gets the access to the more the powerful co- version co- wins. Yeah, right. So it's scary. But as a way to example, they ran the algorithm software over that guy's face. Yeah. All right? And the software goes, nah, pure joy. That's what this man is feeling right now, pure joy. Yes, he's doing an interview about something super <sighs> heavy, but he is so just ecstatic that this child. In like a subversive way, like it's just, yeah. just blown up his career probably, which it didn't, of course, but. Yeah. Oh God, he's experiencing pure joy at that moment because his child is just being a kid. Oh, she's well, so doing, funny, that kid. Yeah, it's magnificent. But yeah, you've gone from this 20 ways to make a white jacket work, <laughs> all right? And now I'm on a rooftop and yeah. now I'm, I'm, my body's broken. I'm surrounded by death and destruction yeah. and the smell of open sewerage and blood yeah. and, and dead animals and, yeah. and fuck, I'm in the middle of the ocean and there's no clean... I don't even know... Where no the can, hell is the Australian government? <laughs> <laughs> Watching the cricket. We yeah. didn't know. I know. You know, it was Boxing Day. I know. And even if we went as fast as we could, it was still 15 hours away, you know. We have those fast jets and things. Like, and physics. In my head, it was going to happen. Physics is physics. You can't get there quicker than we can get there, you know. But every step of the way, people have gone, all right, hmm. I don't know you, but I'm going to help you. Yeah. And this, from what you were telling me before, gave you a sense of, all right, People are good to each other. They are. And we're not, you know, that whole a man is not an island. Like terrible, you know, obviously the synergies with the island. But, you know, I feel like sometimes when you're like a smart professional or whatever and you, you do kind of like it's just you and the world versus the world and whatever. And that's like that's not real life. Like we're not islands and we kind of like I need people and I, I've learnt that even, you know, becoming a parent and all of those sorts of things like... 
doesn't matter how clever and smart you are and successful or whatever, like like humanity and community and all of those things, they are vitally important and essential for happiness, you know. And when those really difficult times come, which, you know, are inevitable for everybody, that's when you know it's how important it is to be, have those people around you. That's what it is to be human, though. Yes. We can try and divorce ourselves from it as much as we like. Yeah. We can try and separate ourselves. We can try and build homes and build rooms inside those homes to separate us from each other so we uh, try to be in control of our situation. But ultimately, as people, mm. I fundamentally believe we are hardwired to connect with each other, to help each other mm. for the betterment of both of us. Absolutely. That is how we got here. Yeah. And <laughs> that's how we will continue to stay. Yeah. It, re- it, really, it really is because there's some switch inside us that flicks. When we help another person, it gives us a sense of happiness that no big screen TV can get you. Incredible. Yeah, I agree. You know? I agree. We're, we're lied to and told, yeah. oh, no, no, the iPhone XS, the one with the biggest screen, <laughs> that'll make you happy, G. Get that one, Ginsburg. Yeah. It's fun for about a week. Yeah. <laughs> no, I know. I know. <laughs> and then I'm like, oh. I thought I was happy because even though I've got this big fucking phone. (laughs) So which hospital were you at when you came back to Australia? Westmead Hospital. Right. So uh, as far as Sydney's concerned, that's that's inland from here and it's an extraordinary facility. I've been there a bit with work. Yeah, it is. It is. And... And, you know, it was, a, it was a long way from where I lived in the eastern suburbs, mm. but I got very comfortable there and I didn't want to leave. Yeah, yeah. And those people, my surgeon is one of my closest friends now. And right. The nursing staff, I know really well still. And, what, you know, what they did for me, I just can't even. Yeah. It's not even the medical stuff. It's what they did for me as a person, right? No, and this thing, I've had a bit of contact with the healthcare system, the public healthcare system over the last few weeks. And... Um, there was a particular person I was with and they were heading into a procedure mm. and the nurse leaned over and held this person's hand and said, we'll see you soon. <laughs> they didn't have to say that. They didn't have to touch this person's hand. I know. But they held out, gave their hand a squeeze and said, we'll see you soon. It's probably against the rules to touch a patient like that as well. Uh, no, it's not. But that's what... No, it's, be- it's humanity, right? Yeah, it's compassion. It is it's compassion. There was an yeah. amazing... He's, I think he's about to retire. Professor Graham Stewart is the head of immunology at Westmead. He used to come and see me all the time. And he used to sit down at my level and look at me at my level. And that just, you know, because I felt so vulnerable and mm. so overwhelmed by everybody peering in at me and at looking at me. Oh, you would have been, a, you would have been like a, a, a sideshow piece. Look, we got one back. Yeah, she is. She's got everything wrong with her. I mean, they would come in with their clipboards, 27-year-old female, da-da-da-da. And then this guy used to sit there and, like, look at me with his beautiful blue eyes and and just connect with me and that was the best part of my day. Yeah. You know. Right, because I can only imagine the the bacteria that you brought back with you was exotic to say the least. Nasty. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. No doubt. Yeah. Wow, that's extraordinary. And from what I understand, it's a lot of surgeries, like 140 surgeries. That's a lot of GA. That's a lot. Yeah, most of it was when I was in a coma, but right, and that's why they induced a coma. But still, it was a lot. It was a lot, and they, my surgeon, who is you know now a really well-known cosmetic plastic surgeon, what he did for me is just—it's like it's written up in medical journals. He's incredible. Yeah, incredible. 
Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. What's the journey? I mean, that becomes your life. Mm. This is who I am. Yeah. That's a pee and poo in a pan. I can't walk. Yeah. This is me. And yeah. then after a couple months, it's got to be like, well... What happens now? How, what does the journey look like on the other side once you start hitting those milestones? If I can sit up by myself, I can hold yeah. a spoon. Once you start hitting those milestones yeah, quicker and quicker. Th- that's, that, that part is actually really interesting and it's one thing you never really talk about because it's sort of boring in a way because you kind of get through the survival stuff. But, you know, it's – I thought I was better every week and then a month would go by and I was like, actually, last month I was not better. I was still really sick. And it just takes you a very long time, the body, to recover from something like that. And I don't know, I, I, I think this is why I'm such a genuinely grateful person now is that when I was able to go to the toilet by myself, walk five metres by myself, they were like fist pump moments, like, yes, 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 I can do it. So for me, getting back to being a fully functioning lawyer again was like Mount Everest. It was like the best ever. And my firm was so good to me. They knew how much I loved being a lawyer and they would give me like fake jobs to do. Rebecca, only you could do this menial task for us. And I would just like sweat over it and do a terrible job, no doubt. But I just got I started working again and doing small jobs. And they, I came in an afternoon a week, a morning a week two mornings a week, three, half a day, half a week. And then eventually I came back to work full time. I kept having to have surgery and things like that. But, you know, when I went back and I could do it, I really, really loved doing it because I could do it. Hmm. And for a while there I was just staring at a wall, you know, for like months. Someone who's had a life of just extraordinary stimulus and curiosity and that, nothing. to have nothing instantly except a bad television on an end of a retractable yeah, arm. with a funny static noise. Oh, <sighs> coming out of the speaker in the thing. Yeah. The <laughs> speaker. Uh, Hate it. That would have been really tough mentally. That would have been really hard yeah. for you. But, you know, also, you know, the struggle with these big events like this is when you are suddenly have these life and death issues in your face, how do you be a normal person again? And how do you see those things and then have a conversation with someone about the weather? It's really hard to normalise yourself. You know, my girlfriends would come and visit me and I used to love fashion and, like, clothes and silly articles like that. And they would bring me that the air-freighted Italian Vogue and say, look what we've got you. And, and I'd look at it and I'd think, how could I possibly read Italian Vogue after what I've seen? Like... I'd think about the hundreds of thousands of people that died and then I'm going to go and live my life by reading Italian Vogue. Surely I have to go and, like, save the world. And, like, I found it really hard to find my place in the world and and how to, like, honour what had happened 
to me and the memory of those people who died and I didn't and all of those sorts of things and processing that sort of thing. And I had a really great psychologist who gave me some really good advice about just not making any big decisions for the first year because you wanted to. You wanted to leave and go and build 50 schools in Thailand and go and, like, work out a clean water solution in Asia and all those sorts of things. And I'm glad I didn't because I had to, like, be back comfortable in me and process what had happened to me and be okay with it, right? Mm. And so I took his advice and I went back to doing what I was doing and when I could actually sit down and read my Italian Vogue was just bloody fantastic. Like, I was okay and I had... I was accepting of like the, what had happened to me and the changes to me and my health and my body and my life. And I, you know, being able to enjoy normal life was like the gift, right? Like the, the golden ticket. Mm. You know, it was a long journey to get to that point. And now I'm back to my old vacuous self. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, but, surely. But with, but with like a bit of perspective now, right? Yeah. You know, surely there's, yeah, I was going to say, surely you can't have... Of course I'm not back to the, who I was before. No. How could you ever be? But being able to be a normal person again yeah. was a gift. Yeah. I cannot imagine that you, you know, a simple thing like the cuddle of the puppy that you got when you came in here, oh, moments like that to- would stick a little harder, wouldn't they? Oh, absolutely. I have my, like my kids always like roll their eyes when I do it and I... I mean, sitting in the car and I feel the sunlight on my face. And it's moments like that I think, oh, my God, I'm so grateful that I'm alive. And they're like, oh, mum, you're so weird. And I am weird about that because that's because, you know, I know that I nearly wasn't. And I just think about these beautiful moments that I get to share with my kids. Mm. And they're the things that, like, make me cry when I walk down the street, right? Mm. Um, so, you know, I... I don't have them too often, otherwise I wouldn't get any work done. No, that's fair enough. But I do, I'm really cognizant of that. I feel just, I feel very, very grateful for Mm. all of those little things like the dog. Yeah, yeah. And the sunlight, you know. You mentioned your kids, that that you were were told, sorry, sorry, Beck, it's never going to happen. Yeah. What was that conversation like? You know, they told me that in Singapore when I went to go and get some treatment for my pelvis and they got smashed to bits and... I was accepting of it. I was like, you know what? Fair call. I can't have it all. And I'm lucky that I'm alive. So let's not get greedy, Rebecca. Right? And mm-hmm. I was like, that's going to be my lot in life. And I was sad, but I was accepting of it. Yeah. And of course, you know, I kind of made my peace with it. And it's funny, like, as I make my peace with so many things, I seem to get them, right? Yeah. Made my peace with the fact that I was going to die at that moment. And then I didn't. And, you know, I, w- I just met some amazing doctors, incredibly gifted uh, reproductive specialists who just kick-started that reproductive system of mine. And I have this beautiful son. He was a, they call him a, you know, they, when they show you in the, what they do when they fertilise your eggs, they show you what these little blastocysts look like and all of them are different, different stages. And lots, But there was this one, this one one that was like, climbing out of the egg already, like just sprinting. And that was my son. They call him a hatching blastocyst. And um, I have, when I, he's a supreme athlete. He's just, you know, has this incredible attacking defence. And I just always think about him as my hatching blastocyst. And, <laughs> and, you know, and then I amazingly had a daughter after that. And I, I've, I'm so, like, they were just like the icing on the cake, right? 
Yeah, because you got you got told that you're never going to have kids, but then things change in your life, and you go, actually, I can, I do, I want, I yeah. do want this now, and so yeah. you start down that path. Yeah. And hey, how are you going? Challenging patient. Um, yeah. This is what's going on, but then your body just went. Actually, no, this is, we're good with this. We can and do you it. fell pregnant again really quickly, didn't Absolutely. you? Absolutely. And, you know, my, my pediatrician and all those people, they're like, oh, we're so worried about your body because I've had so many things done to every part of my body. And the human body just adjusts. And I carried my pregnancy a little higher than they expected, went almost to full term, no real major complications, you know. Amazing. Dream run. Incredible. Dream. Yeah. Incredible. That's wild. I mean, Audrey's been there before with Jay when she was little, but she's not little now, as you can see. Was she a very tall baby? Were you, Georgia? Yeah. I can see that. Yeah. <laughs> very yeah. big. <laughs> I think she was, you were 4'4", four, four, weren't you? 4.4 4 kilos. Wow. Yeah. Wow. You know, it's sort of, you know, I'm not saying that I always used to be really scared of having a baby when I was little. As a kid, and I was like, oh, I'm just not sure I can push a baby out. And so one of the upsides of that tsunami was definitely had to have a Caesar. Silver <laughs> lining, there it is. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Because of your where your body was, yeah. like, yeah, nah. Exactly. <laughs> okay. so I was like, oh, guys, I'm so sorry. I had this traumatic injury. I can't possibly push a baby out. <laughs> <laughs> so... As time passes and, and, and more time passes and then Georgia was one when mm. that tsunami happened, but soon, I mean, I'm old, I'm 45, there's people that were not born until yeah. after I started my career on Idol, you know, who, who don't remember that I was ever in radio or ever. Like there's going to be a point when this memory isn't so fresh collectively for yeah. everyone and you'll get to go, oh, yeah, so in 2004, yeah. 20 years ago, it's nearly 20 years. Yeah. It's nearly 20 years yeah. that it happened. You it's crazy, go, hey? Yeah. You know, I see it. So there was a man who helped me on the day and he had these beautiful young kids who were only 10 and 12 at the time and they lost their mother. Oh. It was awful. And I see Alexandre was 12 years old and he was a little teenage boy. And I've seen him sort of every year of my life since then. How? We found each other. Because a dad helped me that day and held a sarong over me. And I was very, very sun sensitive for my open wounds. And he was a friend, he met a beautiful French man who raised these little kids by himself. And we connected through, through. DFAT through the guy in Melbourne and through like this community of people on that island and he's so dear to me and I have I feel so close to those kids and so connected to them and you know I see you know he graduated from IPSA which is space school in France and he runs satellites around the world who shows you your weather you know and he's like a fully functioning brilliant young man gorgeous guy and that makes me feel old but also so I love the passing of time and I love that from that tragedy he's become this, you know, it breaks my heart his mother's never seen him like that. But from that he's just developed into this incredible person. And I kind of, you know, I like, I like that. I like that, that so much time has gone by since that happened because, it's, you know, he's prevailed. And, you know, I see him as a, as a young man now and it's beautiful. I have bought many a psychologist a beach house <laughs> or a boat. Yeah, uh, or sure. a boat to park outside their beach house. <laughs> and this one psychologist said to me once, there's the traumatic event 
Mm. Car crash, assault, whatever, the thing, the horrible thing that happens to you. Yeah, everybody's own tsunami. Yeah, yeah. And then there's the day after and then there's two days after and then there's a week after and then there's a month after and then there's a year after and then there's a five years after and then there's ten years after. And then, you know, because... And what it did for me, because I was trapped in the event. oblivion after the event. I was trapped and the great amount of fear I had was what if this thing happens and I could see just nothing on the other side. So therefore I was just terrified that that yeah. would be it. But what you're describing to me, not only your own story, but this young man is, yes, this horrendous, this cataclysmic thing that destroyed hundreds of thousands of lives. It just, yes, it did happen. And... There was the hours after where this man held the sarong yeah. and these people got you on the door and got you down. Yeah. There was the days after that yeah. you got. There was the weeks after. There was the months after. And here we are 15 years later and you're sitting around the kitchen table yeah. in Bronte. <laughs> I know. Yeah, you're right. You're 100% right. Mm. And, and, and for, I guess when she told me that, I, I, it made me fear things a lot less. Mm. That, yeah, that might be really shit for a little while but it's not going to be like that forever exactly you know yeah nothing can burn forever unless it's the Chernobyl which was really interesting <laughs> did you watch that it was great no. um, eventually fuel will run out and the situation will stop and then something else will happen yeah I had that kind of realisation on the 10th anniversary I took my kids back oh wow to Pippi Island and this area where I was rescued and taken to it's this pool top a concrete pool top and there was a concrete pool and there were sun lounges and people were stacking bodies on the sun lounges and I was lying on one of the sun lounges and just you can't even imagine how weird that would have been, right, just lying with bodies all around me. And on the 10th anniversary I went back and I, that pool is still there and there were just like Germans oiled up lying in the sun and they kind of look like dead bodies actually. Hmm. And... Just looking at that and these people sipping on their cocktails and whatever, I was like, fuck, you know, this was an awful thing in my head that stayed in my head and that image of those bodies. But life goes on. Look at these people. They're lying in the exact same spots as those bodies were. And the world is moving on. This resort has moved on. This town has moved on. This island has. I need to move on. I mean, it's a terrible memory, of course, but PP Island's not a horrible place in my head anymore. It's back to being a holiday island and kind of letting go from that horror. Bad things do happen, but, like, they don't stay the same, right? It got cleaned up and rebuilt and... Yeah. Yeah. But that is so much what it is to be human, isn't it, that mm. we do that? Yeah, that's right. I'm so grateful that you had that opportunity to have that reframe that yeah. super powerful reframe Absolutely. because that would have been, no, it's always like that in 100%. my head. It, every time I think of that, that's what it is and forever. Yeah, and now I think about the Germans, right? <laughs> Having the best day. I do. And, and like, it was beautiful going there and it kind of re, it did reframe how I looked at the whole thing. It was kind of, you know, when I went there, I was sort of going there to remember the tragedy and the whatever and I turned up and I saw, like, kids of parents who died who were adults and I don't know it just it kind of I looked at that event through a different prism you now do a lot of work to 
give back to the community in, in, in many ways, not only in the legal profession that where you work, but also in the sporting field, mm-hmm. but also in, in healthcare. Yeah. And it seems like you did quite the tour of the Southeast Asian hospital system. <laughs> sure did. Um, I think th- I've been to every private hospital, public hospital in this city as well. Well, when you think about the healthcare system that we have in this country, oh, what, do you, what do you think? Christ, we're so lucky. We are so lucky. One thing I really struggled with was thinking about the Rebecca Giles of Thailand who was in a local hospital still there while I was being, you know, pampered at Westmead and mooned over by beautiful people and it broke my heart. And, you know, the privilege that we have is just very happy to pay my tax, let's put it that way. I said exactly the same thing. Yeah. When when they give you that breakdown... And you look at how much money goes to healthcare. Sure. I'm like, yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I was talking to my brother about this. He spent some time in, in China, and I was, I, I got, I got the. It doesn't compare. All right. Yeah. I once got. I was admitted to an emergency ward in Indonesia. I was in an ER in Indonesia. It was, it was not amazing. Like yeah, sure. that, the fact that it was a hospital there is amazing. Yeah, sure. All right. Because yeah. there's a village down the street that doesn't have a hospital. All right. And then. I was in a bit of trouble and then a couple of phone calls get made. I'm like, oh, no, no, it's cool. We figured it out. Go three k's down the street and it's on the left. It was like a, it was a hotel with IV drips. Mm. And I lay in the room by myself. I was in a room of the same size with 50 people in it. And then 15 minutes later, I'm sitting in this room by myself with two people putting a drip on me and someone giving me an IT mask. And I was like, this isn't fair. I know. I will take it. But this isn't fair. And I didn't know what to do with it. Yeah, I mean, but you, you look at societies who have broken healthcare systems and you see the inequality that it produces. Well, that's the other thing. I lived in America for a long time mm. and I see that there, that people stay in jobs that are terrible with Just bosses that are awful to them, but it means that their kids can, if they injure themselves in Saturday sport, they won't lose their house, yeah. which is what they look at. Yeah, Absolutely. That's, I mean, that's crazy that anyone's even considered. I mean, as Australians, we never have to make those decisions. But it allows us to make career choices and make economic choices and maybe take risks that we otherwise would never take for our own careers and our lives because we know if anything goes wrong, if we ever get help, we'll always be okay. Absolutely. But there's so many countries that do not have that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I remember when I was pregnant with Tico, I ran into John Howard and I just... When he was PM? No, he wasn't PM by then and I thanked him so much. <laughs> I just said, look, I've just been in a public hospital, you know, and they did a special sort of tsunami response thing as well. And I just, I said, I can't tell you how, you know, these decisions that you make, you know, down in Canberra affected my life and changed my life and I'm so grateful. Yeah. You know. He, yeah. I don't agree with his politics personally. The man took guns off. He made it harder to get a gun than it can to get health care mm. in this country. That's not my line. That's from the, yeah, the no. quarterly essay yeah, um, yeah. which just came out. That, that we live in a country where it's harder to get a gun than it is to get healthcare is one of the greatest things yeah. ever, ever, yeah. ever, 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 ever. Absolutely. Ever. What a legacy. Absolutely. It's, it's freaking extraordinary. You co-parent, you have this job, you've got the kids by yourself a lot, you have this high-stress gig. Someone with a, a body that hadn't been through what, you know, they've been through with struggle. How do you keep together day to day? How do you deal with the stresses that your work brings? Look, to be honest with you, I have a lot of support. 
a lot of support. I have the most, um, I am in this group of strong females that if I didn't have them, I don't know what I would do. I, I don't want to pretend that I'm a superwoman because I'm not. The wheels fall off quite regularly. I haven't been to the gym in about 10 days, you can probably tell. But what I'm saying is like, I think people have this view of me as being this like, and I'm, ju- this, and I'm just not. And accepting the imperfections of my life and then I'm just sort of sometimes I just, kids are really lucky to get lunch, right, and being okay with that and not being this perfect mother and perfect, you know, everything, that's how I get through, just not, not trying to be everything to everyone, right. I'm really religious about things in terms of, you know, looking after myself and making sure I have time for me. Meditation is a really big part of that. Otherwise I just like... I lose the connection with myself. Mm-hmm. So those sorts of things I have to be really religious about doing regularly. But honestly, the routine is really big for me. Friday night dinners with my kids. I have Sunday morning morning tea with my female friends. And I just love being in my community and that community of what, with what I've built of people that I love and I want to be around. And that's kind of my, I feel like it's the secret to my success, to be honest with you, because they give me the space and the encouragement and the energy to be me, right? To be like, oh, Tico's been bitten by a bee. Can someone take him to the doctor, please? Because I'm in court. And someone does. Mm -hmm. All of those things. But those communities take effort to maintain and nourish. Absolutely. But there's, how rewarding. Like, yeah. And it, take, it takes time to build those things. Yeah, they do. They do. And I feel like in modern life, it's, sometimes it's hard not to be in a, It's very easy not to be in a community. And it's we, we get this cheap version because we feel we're connected because I liked your photo on Instagram know, this right? morning. So therefore we're friends. It's false. Yeah. It's not real. Yeah. It's not. Some very lonely people have lots and lots of followers, right? Yeah. Mm. Those people won't go pick up your kid when you're busy. No. In fact, and those people who do pick up my kids aren't even on Instagram, right? <laughs> Truth, they have no time. You only need a couple people. Yeah, yeah that's right. Four that's or right. five. Yeah. hundred. Cr- shit, one. <laughs> one is good. No, absolutely. You know? Yeah, One absolutely. is good. But we, what's fascinating about that is like the – and I, I, I became real aware of it when I lived in, in America and that you know, I was not around family and so the family were the people that I chose mm. and they're the people I spent a lot of time with mm. and – as the saying goes, you're a reflection of the, the people that you spend most time with, so you've got to choose carefully. Yeah, absolutely. Because I had made some poor choices. Yeah. But now I just, you know, it's well, so vital. Well, when you're an adult, you know, when you're our age, Osha, like in our 40s, you know who you are now. Like, can you not – I mean, I used to be – if anyone showed me a bit of attention, I'd be like, <laughs> like a puppy dog. And now it's sort of like, who do I want to feel like? Who do I want in my life? And some of these historical friendships and things like that, they just naturally fell away because. It's okay. And it is okay. And it's totally fine. But I've been so grateful that I've been able to, you know, like Taryn, for example, you know, she's an amazing person. And I'm so, she's someone that I chose to have in my life and has enriched my life so much. I feel like when you're younger, you don't really get that choice. It's sort of like the people that you're stuck with at school or university or whatever. And when you're older, you just get the choice now. It's amazing. Mm, really. Speaking of people who are young or at school, we have a, a beautiful young woman at school. She's just over there. Yeah. She's got her subject selection night. Oh, tonight. Tomorrow night. Oh, tomorrow, tomorrow night. night. I'm, but I'm, I'm working, unfortunately, so I can't yeah. be there. But if you, like when you go and speak to women her age, kids who are like 15, 16, yeah. what do you tell them? 
honestly, it's probably the wrong advice, but I'd be like, chill out. Don't worry about it. Like there's no bad, you can't make a mistake with your subject selection now because even if you do have too many sciences and you want to do some humanities, you'll be okay if that's what you really want to do. I mean, I always used to find it amazing when you have to choose what your life path was when you're 17. Like, I didn't even know who I was when I was 17, let alone my life path. Yeah. And, you know, I, I went back to my university recently and was just, like, reflecting on my graduation and the people who were sitting to the right and left of me, and how none of them really practice law anymore. And they were just there because that's what they chose when they were 17. But it's kind of crazy that you have to make these big decisions that are supposed to point you in the direction and, you know, set you on this trajectory. Yeah. But the point is, you know, you can pivot, you know, it's flexible. You're not locked into anything forever. Yeah. And, you know, we're in this, we're so blessed in terms of our options with education and ability to be mobile about that when you're older. So academics aside, what, what is important when oh. you're a 15, 16-year-old powerful young woman? I think, to be honest with you, like having outside of your parents and I wouldn't say this in front of you because right. as a parent but you've got to have I think it's really important to have the strong role models and people that outside of your family unit can give you that guidance because it's a, it's a funny time you know it's a funny time where some people go just like haywire and whatever and having sort of a trusted older person I think is so important and I, I certainly had that and I had people who kept me on the straight and narrow and kept me from making some bad decisions and away from bad people and all those sorts of things and so you know like I always recommend to people mentoring relationships at any stage 15, 16, 17 when you're 40 you know having someone looking out for just you that's invaluable right absolutely you know, I, I, the mentor relationships that I'm in, I get way more out of it than those younger people get from me. The people that you help? Yeah, for sure. Like, just pure joy, like, just moments of hilarity as well. Like, yeah, it's fantastic. I could talk to you all afternoon, but I know you're a very busy person. So I was so grateful you came around. It was so nice to chat. It was lovely. Thank you for being here. Pleasure. It's the best. I'm just going to shoot your photo real quick, okay? Yeah, no problem. Sweet, thanks. That was Rebecca Giles. You can find her on Instagram, Rebecca, R-E-B-E-K-A-H, Giles, G-I-L-E-S, all one word. An incredible tale. I'm so grateful that she came on the show and shared her lesson with us. And that's something that I'll carry with me forever. It's extraordinary. It's a good skill set. (laughs) thank you very much to everybody that made this show happen today I don't make this show by myself a lot of people help me out Uh, Rachel Barrett of course my show producer the executive producer of my life the one that makes everything that becomes an idea in my head into a reality that's uh, Rachel Andy Ma my audio producer who's an absolute legend and um, has been helping me make this show for years and years now Mike Mills the great and powerful toe hider who made all the music you heard today and my wife Audrey for being epic this week I tell you, man, I am a very lucky human being. She is an amazing woman. And um, if you've been reading her articles on Yahoo, you might kind of be starting to get a glimpse as to what I get to live with and the wisdom I get to learn from every day. Thank you heaps for listening. If you need me through the week, send us your email at gmail.com. Thanks again to Rebecca Giles for being on the show. Have a great week. Look after yourself. Take care. You just have to do it a day at a time. 
And in a couple of days from now, I'll talk to you on Friday. So until then, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.